So in many ways this week, our text is a complementary text to last week. Now, if you ever are like, listen, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive 15 minutes of Adam talking, but I still need to understand what the sermon is. Now that that children's time is right before, I give you like the 90-second overview, the Cliff Notes version. So just so you know kind of the thesis ahead of time, and then if you like, you know, you zone out because you're tired, it's fine. You got the most of it. And certainly, we talked about last week, right? Sort of the need to think about as this Easter moment becomes an Easter movement, how we tend to have to deal with differences internal to our community. We talked about the Tower of Babel and how all of that, too much similarity, eventually starts to break apart. Now what's interesting too is this Acts passage does that, but now we're paired with a different complementary gospel passage that we heard a few weeks ago. I mean, this has actually been within the lectionary recently. So we're going to spend most of our time on the Acts passage, because this is a little different. But to start, I thought maybe the first place to go is to see what's on the menu. Because Acts 11 really is predominantly talking about food, or at least to start with. When Peter has this grand vision and he sees all this stuff, it seems a little disorienting to us to begin with, right? Because we're like, well, why does it matter that there's lizards and animals and things? So you start to remember that these folks weren't quite Christians as we think of ourselves. They're still part of the Jewish tradition and they're just starting to understand what it may mean to not just be a sect within Judaism, but to be something completely different. All these folks would have understood all of the traditions that they were a part of for centuries, including a lot of the food regulations. And if you're curious, if you really want to dig into them, Leviticus 11 will give you almost all of them. I mean, if you're really like, man, I need to know what I can eat and not eat. The first thing is that meat was very much restricted. You had to deal with cloven, cloven hooves and what they ate, and it was an and, so it couldn't be one or the other. You had to be okay with both. So that eliminated things like camels and rabbits and pigs. You could eat like deer. You could eat some other animals, some, some oxen, some things like that. Birds of prey were forbidden, as well as those who fed on carrion. So you couldn't eat a hawk, nor could you eat a vulture. I don't know why anybody would want to eat a vulture, but I guess if you were really stuck, uh, I, do, you have, do you have personal experience with eating vulture? Okay. No, no shellfish or fish that had fin but no scales could be eaten. So sorry, Mayport shrimp friends. Those would have been off the menu for our friends here in the text, which I know I personally would grieve because that's mostly what I get now when I go to a fish camp. I get a half a pound of shrimp and I live my life and... If I were one of these folks, that would be verboten. Nothing that crawled on the ground could be eaten. And here's the really interesting part, going back and reviewing this. If one of those animals that crawled on the ground happened to touch one of your pots or one of your vessels, you were mandated to break it. So you can imagine a caterpillar just sort of going about its business and accidentally falling into the oven. Well, now you've got to break that oven and you've got to start from scratch. I imagine there were a lot of days. 
you had to cook dinner probably a half a dozen times just because you're like, well, there goes that pot again. This would have been something that as people who were still faithfully Jewish, each of the disciples and each of the apostles would have known. And it was in place, the best that we can date Leviticus and some of these other law books for like 700 years. This would have been in the water for every single one of the folks that we see in this text today. And when you think about it, there's a lot of reasons, even if, even if I'm just sort of thinking, well, why would folks not want to eat that stuff? Again, I'm not sure I would be terribly excited about eating birds that eat carrion. That just feels like a bad health outcome waiting to happen. But really, a lot of these codes and a lot of these laws, and indeed, a lot of the stuff that you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you know those Old Testament books that you're like, I know they're there, but I don't really want to read it. Those laws were meant to define God's chosen people as a special group of people. So many of these laws, including these food purity laws, primarily traced back to identity. As you trace through a lot of these laws, not just the food laws, you understand that they're trying to set themselves up against their neighbors, who now they have to contend with in a new land that they have recently found is their own. As God's chosen, they should be special and unique. So you can understand how this story in Acts might end up coming as a bit of a shock and why there would be a healthy dose of criticism from the folks who had been bound by this tradition for over half a millennia. And their concern wasn't about baptism, right? Because Peter then talks a little bit about baptizing Gentiles. That didn't seem to be the issue, but it was about Peter's association at all in the first place. Like, why would you associate with these uncircumcised folks? In other words, these Gentiles... In your midst. Do you not know who you are, Peter? But notice Peter's journey, and I love the fact that in the Acts text, he literally, you know, the writer literally says, Luke says, Peter took folks step by step. Like there's actually an argument that gets built, which seems really helpful that if we're talking about, well, why would you go talk to those folks? We think it's crazy that somebody would do that. Maybe the first thing incumbent on us is to walk people through it step by step. But the first thing that happens is Peter begins by prayer. He's praying to hear what God is asking him to do. He is seeking discernment. And he's praying in Joppa. And Joppa is a port city in Israel. So you could imagine at that time there would have been people from all over the Mediterranean not just Jews, but Gentiles from all areas coming to do business in Joppa. This was the place that if you wanted to get to know some Gentiles, you probably are going to have an easy time finding somebody. So he's present in a place that might feel a little foreign and a little diverse. And he finds himself caught in a vision that directly challenges the long-term norms of him and his people. God lays out this tapestry brings it down in four corners and there's animals there that he shouldn't eat and God says that's yeah, fine go ahead and Peter being good Peter says nah Lord I have never eaten of any of that and then God says don't deny what I have made clean 
So now we are starting to hear some cognitive dissonance amidst a six or seven hundred year norm for these folks. And then immediately afterwards in the story, Peter has a chance to test out this change. He's still leaning on his discernment, if you notice, this time from the Holy Spirit, encouraging him to make no distinctions as he moves forward. And moreover, he then follows the Holy Spirit's words. In the Greek here, this word for distinction, where the Spirit is saying make no distinctions between one or the other, can also have a sense of hesitation, a holding back because of uncertainty or insecurity. But the Spirit says, don't get yourself worried about how this might seem a little strange. This might seem a little off from what you're used to. Just go. Just go. And it turns out thoughtful, discerning Peter, who, as we've talked about for the last few weeks, doesn't always have the sterling track record that the one who's supposed to be the rock of the church is supposed to have. Well, this time, he seems to listen and listen directly, and off he goes. But if you notice, he doesn't do anything terribly dramatic in this step-by-step account. There's no big sermon Pentecost moment. There's no sweeping, whooshing winds. There isn't anything fancy. Really, this is about as low risk as you can get. This is the ancient equivalent of grabbing a cup of coffee at Starbucks and having a chat. I just want to get to know you a little bit better. He just eats and speaks with others. But this, dear friends, has major implications for the nascent church that is just beginning to form and break away from its Jewish roots. So the step-by-step thing happens, but what I think is really fascinating and how I think this Acts text really turns is the end of the passage. Because Peter says something really remarkable, and as I read it over and over again, I just found so lovely. If God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? This is Peter, y'all. The guy who denied Jesus like a few months ago guy who didn't want to accept having his feet washed. But this experience, this reaching out to the Gentiles, the people who were different, the people who, based on hundreds of years of experience, would lead one to believe that it was not ideal that they would be part of the fold. If God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could hinder God? Who? And the others after hearing that, beginning with criticism, now are silent. And that silence gives way to praise and celebration. Those 
who we thought might not be part of the fold, have been given the gift of metanoia, of a chance to rethink their lives and to do something new. Reconsideration. But it's interesting as you read that passage and you really think about the whole story from both sides, that metanoia isn't really just for the Gentiles, is it? No, it is for the apostles as well. Those who started this conversation being critical of the ones that Peter was going to go have lunch with. There is now new life with this realization for the church. Immediately after this passage in Acts 11, we now get to witness the birth of a brand new church in Antioch that has both Jews and Gentiles together trying to figure out how to make this life of the way work. It actually had a positive outcome. People lived together, worked together, praised together, celebrated together. That had never done that before. Now, I think it is so easy for us to get and spend a lot of time getting caught up with Peter's point. I understand that it's, it's very tempting for those of us who are on this side of the pulpit to really start to push on this, like, who do we think we are that we could stop the movement of God? Yeah, there's some truth there. Ends up being a rabbit hole of frustration and guilt that honestly, at the end of the day, does more not to get us anywhere. So we can feel bad about ourselves. We can feel guilty that we've not reached out enough. But you know what? Let's skip that for a minute. And I wonder what it would be like instead to consider more the silence that then leads to praise. Because here's the thing. Our gospel text reminds us again that we have a clear vision of what could happen now that Jesus has died and is resurrected and now we're going from Easter movement to Easter movement. What Jesus gives us in John 13 is a vision of agape, of deep love to one another. And when the disciples would have heard this at the time, they didn't have in their imaginary what would come up just a little bit later in Acts 11. They couldn't have had the visibility of that movement. That loving one another might actually extend further than the reaches of the upper room. Which would lead us to an interesting question. Even when we don't realize it, even when we don't have the visibility to it, what kind of boundaries can that true Christ-centered agape love transgress? You know, I think about this a lot as we continue to live in a world that digs its heels very deeply into broken human traditions that span even less time than what we see in Leviticus, yet seem to carry greater recalcitrance. It's as though somehow these human creative norms are more rigid than the ones that God has put and instituted and then says, you know what, but things have changed. At what point, dear friends, is there discernment from the Spirit that invites us then not to hesitate because of insecurity and just go be with somebody for a cup of coffee that is 
different and may for a while have not been the type of person that you would have expected should have belonged to the church in fullness. Because there is a bifold praise here that we should be willing to transgress those boundaries we now keep even though that God has broken them. Because I imagine if we transgress those boundaries, we break open those walls, we go to folks that are different from us, those who we would have thought don't really belong in the church, that the Holy Spirit will dance upon them. And we actually get to witness that. Do you see that in the Acts text? Peter starts talking about what's going on, and he says, suddenly I saw the Holy Spirit, just like I did at Pentecost. Wouldn't it be cool to see that with somebody that you wouldn't necessarily expect in here on Sunday morning? Or that hasn't traditionally been here on Sunday morning? I know I'd like to see the Holy Spirit dance on everybody's head. What's going to take transgressing boundaries with agape love? Because just as there's praise for that person, there's also praise for us. We celebrate God's expansion to another group that allows them to change their hearts and follow Christ's call to agape love themselves. And lest we think that that means that the only way to share that celebration is then to have those folks and then they conform to who we've been, well, Paul really has to deal with that a lot in the letters. In particular, in Galatians, where Paul has to spend a lot of time talking about circumcision because the church in Galatians believed that the only way that these Gentiles could actually be a part of this new church was to be circumcised themselves. And Paul says, absolutely not. When we consider texts like this today, I don't know how else to be but to have as full, open, inclusive stance as we can. Now, here's the thing. I don't see that as a political statement because so often it gets sort of moved into this some sort of political statement that by saying we want to have as open of walls as possible and we want agape love to transcend as many lives and as many hearts as possible, that somehow that makes us crazy liberals. It doesn't, friends. It makes us gospel-centered. It enacts the early church as I think so many need it today means that those who, for whatever reason, we thought were not welcome in the church, perhaps could be. And that would be a double praise for us and the person to see the life of the Spirit come alive in them when they have so often felt like it did not belong to them. This is not a political statement, dear friends, but it is a pastoral one. If a movement is truly a movement and not just simply a moment, then it stands to reason that there are others from all over the world, all over creation, who will join alongside us. Folks who may not conform to the earlier norms, but we can celebrate as they join us in our journey. We're not trying to shape them into a particular mold, But we all together continue to understand what metanoia is that leads us to life, to flourishing for all. Here's the thing. If there's any pastor who has gone through the PCUSA over the last 10 years, you're fully aware of the fact that sometimes that requires a little bit of criticism, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of angst, just like at the beginning of this text. And, you know, that's okay. 
We don't all have to agree. We all don't have to be on the same page. In fact, it would seem to argue that it would be antithetical to this text itself if we all were always on the same page. The boundary transgressing agape love truly does work both ways. And the Spirit's celebration upon each of us works both ways. But I wonder if at the end of the day, as we think about a church that is committed to not just being in an Easter moment, but an Easter movement, is how are we discerning? How are we seeing God's vision play out in each of our lives? Even if it seems different than everything that we knew before that moment, because you know what? That is what God is capable of doing. Because I think if we're actively spending time discerning God's voice, God's vision, and the Spirit's movement within us, we might find ourselves at coffee tables and dinner tables with people that we would have never expected just a few years ago we'd ever sit at table with. And watch the dance of the Holy Spirit move in and around each of us. If we don't, then we won't be in Joppa waiting for the Spirit's call and the Spirit's nudge. Friends, I know, I know that sometimes these things are scary and they're frustrating and they're complicated and messy. Sometimes all we want is non-complicated, messy things. But as every parent knows, that sometimes within the mess of the moment, Something truly beautiful is produced. Something unexpected. Something loving and something good. And so friends, let us cross our boundaries with love. And let us see what the Spirit holds for us on the other side. Thanks be to God.